0: One of the first things she said to me was, I don't even know why you're asking about relationships and work and money when you're so unhappy in New York. And that that was really shortly after I had moved there. I hadn't admitted to myself that I was so unhappy yet. So I was like, what? I'm it, Like, I, I shouldn't stay here. I, I should think outside of New York. And she said, not only should you think outside of New York, you should think outside of the country. Think about the whole world as an option for you. And obviously the conversation was much bigger than that, but that stuck with me to this day. Think about the whole world as an option for you. And I started thinking about the whole world. Hey, everyone.
1: Welcome back to Flourished in the Foreign, the podcast that elevates and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. This podcast also explores living abroad as a pathway to wellness. Welcome back to the show. If you've been riding with the show for a minute, I appreciate you. And if you're new, hey, hey welcome i'm the host of the show christine Job, a black american woman and business strategist currently living and thriving amongst pandemic and all the other chaos of 2021 in barcelona so yes i am not only a podcaster But I am a business strategist that helps Black women and women of color leverage their talents and their expertise into viable and sustainable online businesses, businesses that leave them professionally fulfilled and also financially abundant, because yeah, that part, so that they can thrive while they are abroad. Yes, because it is so important. Can't just go abroad, just to be abroad. Gotta thrive abroad. Y'all know what I'm saying? Y'all know what I'm saying. All right, so this podcast is a labor of love. But y'all know, labor, nonetheless, it is labor. And so I ask you all to please support this here Black Woman podcast. You can do so by becoming a Patreon supporter at www.patreon.com slash foreign. By cash apping the podcast at dollar sign flourish form, purchasing a piece of production equipment if you feel so inclined, you can do so via our Amazon wishlist. You can also support this here podcast by obviously sharing this podcast everywhere, not only via Facebook or email or WhatsApp or text. But also LinkedIn and if you have a favorite blog or if you have a favorite writer or magazine, telling them, hey, y'all should check out this really cool podcast, include it in your next podcast listicle and things like that. That's how you can support this here podcast. And if you have not written a review for this podcast, what y'all doing? You've been here for a while. Why haven't you written a, a review? You come back every week. Come on, it's time, it's time. So please write that review today, five stars and a review. Thank you very much. All right, on to the next episode. Today's episode features Dana. And let me tell you a little bit about how I I came to know about Dana. First, shout out to Amanda Bates of the Black Expat because I found out about Dana through her video series that she has on the Black Expat YouTube channel. If y'all haven't checked that out, go ahead, check it out. It's great. Her production is beautiful. I, I can only aspire to that level. But after I watched the video with Dana and I did some research, I just was like, I've got to have this woman on this podcast, and I'm so lucky that she agreed to because I really enjoyed speaking with Dana, learning about her story, about how she went abroad, and you know the trials and tribulations that she has gone through while being abroad, but still just being such a zealous advocate for black people. Oh my goodness, she's incredible. But I'm gonna let her tell you all
0: about it. I am Dana Saxon, 41 years old, and currently living in Bristol in the UK. So, born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and the first time I left to live abroad was in 2011 when I moved to the Netherlands, but I did have shorter stints spending time in other countries starting from when I was 16. The first time I really spent a long time abroad was five weeks staying with a family living in Ghana. So I, I don't know if, that cons- if you consider that living abroad, but that was my first time traveling abroad at 16. I always had a sense of not belonging throughout my childhood. My, my parents were very loving and supportive of everything I wanted to do, but one of the main things or main decisions that my mom made when I was very young, for for me and my sister, was to send us to school in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia. So she was a Philadelphia public school teacher, she's retired now, but her whole career she was a teacher, my grandmother, her mother was a teacher in the Philadelphia public school system. And they were very aware of the limitations that young people were facing when they graduated from Philadelphia's public schools. As much as we hate to say it, it just wasn't the same level of education that you would get if you went to a private school in a white neighborhood. So yeah, it was a tough decision and we still debate it whether or not that was the right thing for us, my sister and I especially. But yeah, we both went to... Private all-girl schools, and from pretty much my whole school education, yeah, I was commuting for over an hour to school and over an hour back. And I lived in two different worlds. I had my my life at at school where I spent most of my time actually, where I was one of very few black students. I was confronting racism on a regular basis classism, and even just understanding the distinctions of class where the the white girls were very wealthy that I went to school with and privileged. And it was the kind of situation where I I thought this is something that is not available to me as a black girl from Philadelphia. So they're never going to come to my neighborhood to visit me. I'll always have to go to their homes and be somewhat not, I wouldn't say jealous, but it was always a sense of this is not accessible to me. So that was my understanding as I was growing up. Like I I don't necessarily fit in, in my, my school community. But then when I'm at home, when I'm in Philadelphia in the home neighborhood, I also don't fit in because I started very early on getting the you talk white distinctions, and why do you always want to do your homework? Why why are you always stuck in the house? So there was this sense of, once I was like 10 years old and older, I didn't really fit in at, at home anymore, and I, or in terms of the neighborhood, and I, I never really felt like I fit in at school. So all of that being said, I always felt like I was looking outward. Where else can I go to belong, and where can I start to Really flourish and be myself if it's not going to be in Philadelphia, if it's not going to be the places that I already know. So, from a very early age, I started looking outward. Where else can I be other than here? <laughs> you know, that planted the seeds for me. I didn't know that that would necessarily be living abroad, but it definitely made me want to go somewhere else. And I would say the biggest. Light bulb moment for me was when I was in high school. I guess I was 15 at the time, and somebody came to the to the schools, the predominantly white school, and they had this program called World Learning, and they visited just like on a lunch break to talk to to us about this program where you could study abroad or or travel abroad for a summer. And they had various countries, like several European countries. You could go to Mexico, you could go to Canada. I don't know, there were many options. But there were two African countries there was a program in Kenya, and there was a program in Ghana. And once they started talking about it, I was looking around the room, like none of the girls in my class were interested. Everyone was just sort of like tuning them out. And I was just like, focused on this woman who was giving this presentation. Like, tell me about my future life. Like what, where are you going to take me? Take me to Africa. I didn't know whether or not it would be Kenya or Ghana, but I knew for sure that at 15 years old, like I wanted to experience Africa. I wanted to go to the continent at that point in my life, because of my experience in this like dual identity and struggling with where I belonged, I had adopted this sense of an African identity. I'm an African living in America. I, I'm i so proud of my blackness. I'm so proud of my heritage and just give me this opportunity to travel to the continent. So I got this brochure, like sweaty hands, like gripping it so tight. I was so excited. I took it home to my mom, like, please, can I do this summer, summer abroad. And we looked up financial aid opportunities and it was an option to get a scholarship to do it. And she was supportive. She knew she had this child who was trying to do crazy things. So she, she did not stand in my way. So she, yes, yeah, she supported me in that. And I ended up going to Ghana for those five weeks. So yeah, by the time I went, I was 16 and I stayed with a family and as with many of these programs uh, that take young people to the continent, it was messaged as a volunteer program. So I was volunteering to clean up some field to help build a school. But really, my my motivation was to learn about Ghanaian people, to experience Ghanaian culture, and to feel myself thriving outside of the United States, which is absolutely what it did. It sparked a whole fire inside of me. I knew that time is better spent outside of the United States and discovering myself in new ways.
1: I asked Dana to tell me about her experience in Ghana.
0: I would say it was traumatic in a way. The reason why I say that is as I was traveling there and I mentioned that I had this sense of myself as an African living in America. And I was so excited to be welcomed home. And I had this image that I would arrive in Ghana and people would say, welcome home, my sister. You've been gone for generations and finally you're back and we can't wait to show you what you've missed. But what actually happened was I was recognized first and foremost as an American. I was traveling there with a group of American students. It was a small group. There were maybe six or seven of us and three three of us were black students, but we were treated as Americans first and foremost, not as African people. And in Ghana, they have this term uh, called Obruni where they refer to foreigners as Obruni, and it's also synonymous with white people. And I was so offended by that. That was where I I experienced a sense of trauma. Like, how dare you (laughs) associate me, put me in the same category as these white peers? I mean, I was friends with these these kids, but I'm different from them. I'm coming home, they're visiting. But I was seen uh, as the same as my white peers and that was hurtful. And being treated as a foreigner, as an outsider, And visiting the slave trading dungeons, visiting the places that are seen as parts of my history, I was still being treated as a tourist and people were trying to sell me stuff and expecting me to have money as an American. And as a young person, I think I would deal with this very differently. I have dealt with it very differently as an adult. But as a young person, it just really hurt. It made me feel sad. It made me feel rejected. And coming from a place as a, throughout my childhood, with this understanding that I don't belong, here I was in Ghana, hoping to belong, expecting to belong, and yet still, I was feeling like I don't belong. I'm I'm not an African person as I thought I should be, as I thought I you know had the right to claim. So from that point on, once I arrived back in the U.S., I maintained a sense of militancy. Still very, very proud of my African heritage, but I had to build a bridge to understand that there is a different identity for Black Americans versus African people on the continent. We have shared heritage. We have so many uh, things in common and so much to celebrate together, right? But there is a unique identity that I have as a Black American. So I started to identify myself as a black person, first and foremost. I don't necessarily hold too firmly to the American identity, but yeah, I'm a black person. We are African people throughout the diaspora. Yeah. And I had to come to a better understanding of that diaspora, black American, all of these aspects of my identity that... As a teenager, I just thought it was much more simple than it actually is.
1: So Dana goes to university and she has the opportunity to study abroad and she chooses to once again return to Ghana. And after she graduates from university, she does what so many people do. I for sure did this. It is decide to go to law school under the assumption that having a law degree is kind of like a... A universal degree. You could do anything with it, which is a conversation for another podcast, for sure. After she graduates from law school, she ends up in Oakland, doing some really important advocacy work, but she was still antsy. And so she moved to New York City, the place where she received some key advice from an unlikely source that truly launched her journey abroad.
0: I ended up moving to New York. And I thought, New York is where there are cute boys. New York is where there's money to be made. And New York is probably where I should be in my mid 20s. And I lived there for about four years. And I was unhappy every every day. I I was miserable in New York. (laughs) So that was when I started thinking, what am I going to do? Like I I don't, I, I really was not sure. So I started looking for advice. I started reading a lot of articles. I started talking to psychics because I was like, somebody's got to give me the answer to this question of what is my life going to be, right? And I'll tell you two seeds that really, like really stuck with me. One was a psychic. I spoke to a woman and she she's a fantastic intuitive reader and she can like see spirit and things like that. So one of the first things she said to me was, I don't even know why you're asking about relationships and work and money when you're so unhappy in New York. And that, that was really shortly after I had moved there. I hadn't admitted to myself that I was so unhappy yet. So I was like, what? I'm, it, like i sh- I shouldn't stay here. i I should think outside of New York. And she said, not only should you think outside of New York, you should think outside of the country. Think about the whole world as an option for you. And obviously, the conversation was much bigger than that, but that stuck with me to this day. Think about the whole world as an option for you. And I started thinking about the whole world, and I thought, well, you know, I've spent all of this time in Ghana. I, you know, I've spent summers at this point. I think I've been to Ghana for maybe five times, but always for at the most six months when I was a student and other times it was three, four months at a time. I never lived there. When I was in law school, I spent a summer, three months in Greece doing a study abroad thing in Greece, but I never thought about living there. Also, I had spent this layover, maybe a year before I had this call with the psychic, coming back from Ghana, I spent about seven hours in Amsterdam, and that was my first time in Amsterdam, and I just fell in love with it, but I just never thought... I could live there, you know, just, but until she said that, think about living outside of the United States, I hadn't taken it seriously. And then I really started, like, my wheel started spinning, like, how can I live outside of the United States? Because that is what I think I need to do. I don't like this country. I don't like the politics. I don't like the limitations of capitalism. Like, there were so many things that I was confronting about America, it was exciting about this idea to live outside of the country. But then I didn't know how. I didn't know how to make it work. Like, okay, I know that I want to live outside of the country. One, where would I go and to live? And two, how would I do it? I had enough trouble getting a job in the United States. How am I going to get a job in some other country? So what I did, though, I started talking about it. And I would recommend this to anyone else who's like can- thinking about a big life change. It doesn't have to be moving abroad. But I just started talking about it like it was real. Like, I'm going to move abroad. I just started telling my friends, I'm going to live outside of the United States. And when people didn't balk at it, people were like, Oh, okay. <laughs> like, really? You think that's possible? So that was that started me really like taking it seriously. And one conversation I had with a friend, we were like, talking about many other subjects. And I just said it in passing. I'm thinking about moving abroad, but I just don't know how. And she said it so calmly. Oh, well, one of the best ways that you can do it is to go to school, because that's that way you can get a student visa. And then she just went on, like, we started talking about other stuff. But the world started moving in slow motion for me, like, every everybody else was still talking and chatting. And I was like, go to school, move abroad, it all started to make sense and started falling into place. And I thought, listen, I really loved Amsterdam for those seven hours that I was there. I'm going to go home tonight and look up to see what schools are there and see if I could study, get another degree in Amsterdam. That that was what was the initial thought. And it ended up coming to fruition. It certainly wasn't overnight. But I applied for a master's program at the University of Amsterdam to study sociology and it ended up making sense. It was an excuse to to move abroad, but it wasn't irrational. I, I made it make sense for my life's plan because at this point, now I had been working in the education nonprofit sector for quite some time and I was enjoying it, but I also was feeling like I was tired of serving someone else's mission. So that was around the same time in New York. I'm unhappy. I'm, I'm tired of working on someone else's mission. I'm ready to start my own organization. I want to do my own work. And if I'm going to go back to school, why not study sociology and ground this future organization that I'm going to start in research? So I used this degree that I otherwise had no purpose for, you no know, like, other than a v- student visa. But I use this degree as the, the basis for my future work for the organization that I was going to start with Ancestors Unknown.
1: So Dana has decided to attend grad school abroad. And I asked her, how did she prepare for that experience? And what was it like the day she left the US and
0: landed in the Netherlands? It felt daunting, but I made it into a whole – I made it into something else because I started a blog before I left. I started a blog called Black Girl Gone, and it was part of my motivation to make it work because once I committed to going, I wanted to stick with it, and I didn't want to change my mind. I didn't want to chicken out. So I had this blog that was putting the message out there to the rest of the world. Even though it was like 10 people following me, but but I was telling people what I was doing, right? and And they were following along with my journey. So I felt like once I got on the plane, I was telling a much larger story than just my personal mission. But yeah, once I was packing, my cat Zora, she had her passport. I had my passport. I was moving out of my apartment in Brooklyn, packed up all my boxes, and I... I put a lot of stuff into storage and then I went to the airport Then my mother was kind enough. She and her, her partner, her husband, they met me in Amsterdam. She lived in Chicago and I was coming from Brooklyn. So we met up in Amsterdam at the airport and with Zora in tow and stayed in a hotel for about four days until my apartment was ready for me to move in because I had student housing, another benefit of being a student. And yeah, so I was thankful that my mom and her husband, Otto, came to support me because I probably would have been much more fearful and just nervous. I obviously have traveled quite a lot, but not with this idea that I'm not coming back anytime soon. So it was like, it was a lot to anticipate. And yeah, so I had them there for those first few days. I think they stayed for about a week. And that was great. And we were going out to eat and they helped me get settled into my apartment. But when they left, I literally cried. I was So I was feeling like I was alone. What did I do? Everyone is speaking Dutch. What what is my life? I've never even, other than my seven hour layover, I had never even been to Amsterdam before. So like, do I even really want to live in this city? So all of those doubts came rushing back once I was really alone. It was just me and Zora in our apartment. And it was daunting, but I used that time to write. I was consistent with Black Girl Gone at that time, like telling everybody about my experiences, what the transition was like, what the plane ride was like. So all of that time I used writing sort of as a therapy and a way to communicate with folks back home I let everybody know I was okay let everybody know what I was going through also hear their support people were sending lots of words of encouragement and rooting for me I asked her to describe her experience attending grad school in the Netherlands so the program um, is a master's in sociology and it was a year-long program but it took me an extra few months to finish my Thesis. So I dragged it out to be about a year and a half. And the cost was about, I think it was about $10,000. The reason why I'm not sure, it just got added to my insane amount of student debt that I already had from law school. And at this point, it was just like monopoly money for me. I was like, yeah, sure, give me another student loan. And that was probably not the smartest thing, but. That's, that's how I covered the cost of that degree. I was resentful of my European classmates, though, because for them, it was significantly cheaper. I think they paid something like 1,500 euros for the year, maybe a little bit more, but it was something, a fraction of what I was paying as a foreign student. That said, I think I was still paying significantly less than what I would have paid for a master's in the U.S., but just still so much so much more than what European students were paying. And yeah, the, the rigor of the program was excellent. It was much more liberal than my US education. I mean, we talked a lot about Marx. I mean, that, that was like my biggest, like, I, I just, I, I'm such a fan of Socialism and socialist theories and understanding that better and understanding the difference between that and communism and like all of these concepts in the US that we we struggle with or we think are just like enemy language, people in Europe speak about it much more openly. And so that education felt, it just felt more significant to me. Maybe it was because of my age also and I was more open to hearing these things, but I'm pretty sure these subjects were not covered in such depth in US universities or at least not what I had learned up until then. Another benefit of studying in Amsterdam in particular is it was such an international environment. It was an international program. Thankfully it was in English and my classmates were coming from all over Europe. There were a few Dutch classmates and but then there were students from Greece, Hungary, Lithuania, you know, like all over, UK. So I felt like I was learning as much from my classmates as I was learning from the professors. We were having very deep conversations and I was really like wide open to what is this world? You know, like what is everyone else learning up until now and how is it different from what I have learned as an American how are our worldviews shaped by where we're raised? How are our political views, our social, economic opportunities? How are all of these things shaped by our different realities, the different countries that we've all come from? These conversations were so significant and really impactful for me and way more than what I would have had in the U.S. And in this program in Amsterdam, I'm pretty sure, unless I'm forgetting someone, I'm pretty sure I was the only American... In my classes, I'm not unfamiliar with being in the minority, but I felt like I felt great in that way. Like, oh, I'm glad to not be surrounded by Americans and to have different perspectives. The thing that I did not love is that I was one of very few Black people. There were no Black students in my other Black students in my specific program. And then in a the few classes that I was taking, I would see maybe 2 or 3 at the most black students in other classes so that was a struggle that as a black person pursuing higher education in the Netherlands you're you're in the minority and yeah that that was frustrating not unusual that is what we see worldwide but it was definitely something that I was having to contend with how do we increase the diversity of these universities where folks are being given all of these opportunities all of these dope conversations that we're having there should be more black folks here but yeah what else is new
1: i asked dana to describe her experience as a black american woman in the netherlands uh well uh, first
0: of all black people are beautiful everywhere (laughs) and yeah so my reality in amsterdam i had two different worlds I, i i was a student and then i was also a black person in the netherlands so they didn't necessarily converge because there weren't many black folks at the university and the way that i tapped into the black community at that time was through political activism and the black folks in the netherlands are just i mean not everyone i can't i can't generalize but the folks that i connected with like my community were so politically engaged, brilliant, and trying to make their country better because they know they live in a great place, but they also know that there's racism that's running rampant. There's, just like I i was explaining with the university, not having uh, equal access for black students. Like this is an issue for black folks and they are fighting it. They're fighting the powers that be. And I found that community. I'm so lucky to be able to say that. I did it in a couple of ways. There is a tradition in the Netherlands that is still existing. But in 2011, which is when I made this move, it was thriving, called Zwarte Piet. And Zwarte Piet has been around for, I don't know, a century or something like that. Late, late 1800s, Zwarte Piet, which means Black Peter, emerged as a tradition in the Netherlands, and it's rooted in racism and slavery. The quick summary is that Zwarte Piet is a blackface tradition where during the holidays, the the December holidays, Dutch people celebrate Sinterklaas, which is kind of like Santa Claus, but not, it's a very, it's a different, somewhat different tradition. Sinterklaas is a white man with a beard and he kind of dresses like a bishop or something like that. And he lives in Spain. He comes to the Netherlands once a year and he stays for about three weeks. This is the, the fable or whatever. He stays for about three weeks and he brings his helpers who are called Peter. And his helpers, and back in the day, you know, we're talking about in the 19th century. Peter would have been Santa Claus's slave. But now they portray Peter in blackface as this comical character, and he's the one who hands out the candy to the kids. He's a little bit of a frightful character because if you be- misbehave as a child, you're told that Black Pete will put you in his sack and take you back to Spain. This is like a whole, it's a whole ridiculous tradition. But the the summary of the tradition is that Dutch folks dress in blackface and love to run around the street to celebrate Sinterklaas in blackface. And in addition to that, there's the whole country turns into this like blackface monster where there's zwartepeet cakes, where there's a blackface character in a cake. There's blackface like Zvartapit posters in all of the store windows. And it just takes over the country for a solid month. And I will tell you, as an American, it's traumatizing because we have our whole historical experience with blackface and obviously with racism. But in the Netherlands, it's like, they have this concept of it like, "Oh, this is different from what you guys do." If you're bringing this American logic to it, this isn't this isn't the United States. We're not we're not like you guys. This isn't racism. You're the racist. And that was the conversation that would typically happen with Dutch people. But what I was smart enough to do and lucky enough to do was find the black folks who were also horrified. The black people who are from the Netherlands who were horrified by this tradition and they've been working for decades to change it, right? So I came in as an American, like, this is horrifying. How can we change it? And instead of saying, like, I'm going to organize all of this stuff, I really was trying to tap into what's already being done. Who are the people who are organizing around Zmarta Pete? How can we have more conversations about this? And how can I contribute to this movement? So, yeah, I, I went to a number of protests and rallies and, meetings, and that was part of my entry into meeting the politically active, brilliant Black community that is in Amsterdam and other parts of the Netherlands as well. Another way that I met Black folks in the Netherlands also is because of the the work that I was doing with my research. So I should mention when I was studying sociology, the thing that I was focusing my studies on, what I was pursuing was to understand the significance of family history knowledge for people who descend from survivors of slavery. So me, as an American, Black American, I descend from survivors of slavery, and I had recently started doing my family history research, and I was very much empowered by that and felt like my life changed by knowing more about my family history. So when I was studying this in the Netherlands, is it significant for people in other parts of the African diaspora who have also descended from survivors of slavery? Is it important for them to know about their family history as well? So that was what my research ended up being about. And I started meeting people in the local community who were interested in researching their family history. So this is Black folks mainly of surinamese heritage mainly from former dutch colony of Suriname, as well as parts of the antilles and they're living in the netherlands though and many of them had the same questions that i had as a black american about my identity about my heritage where do i come from because of our shared histories of enslavement and they also had histories of multiple family migrations they felt very disconnected from their family histories or from their heritage and their identity. And I ended up connecting with that community to help people research their family histories and understand what their questions were, what their questions about identity and heritage were, because that helped my research. And some of them also became my friends. I hope you have been enjoying this week's
1: episode as much as I enjoyed producing it for you all. If you are enjoying this week's episode, be sure to screenshot this episode and share it across your social media channels. Be sure to tag Flourish Foreign at Flourish Foreign and I'll be sure to repost it. Also, if you're interested in learning more about this guest, head over to the Flourish in the Foreign website, www.flourishintheforeign.com, to learn more about them. I have bios, I have pictures, and I have links to their social medias and their websites. Finally, I want to encourage you to please support the podcast either via Patreon, Cash App, Buy Me a Coffee, or or our Amazon wish list. Any amount is greatly appreciated and your consistent support really means so much to me and really makes a difference in the production of this podcast.
0: On to the rest of the episode. I was living in the Netherlands for about eight years, but that includes that year that I spent in Suriname. So I kind of like jumble all of that together. And I spent half of the time living in Amsterdam and the other half of the time living in The Hague, mainly because when I was returning from Suriname, I couldn't find a place in Amsterdam that I could afford to live in because I was no longer granted the privilege of student housing. So I had to find my own place And yeah, I landed in The Hague and I have mixed feelings about the Netherlands. I actually miss it. I made great friends there. I really felt like I had a community in the Netherlands, mainly of black women with a group of friends about, I think it was five of us. We very casually started a meetup group that we were just like flippantly calling Amsterdam black women meetup. And that has turned into a community of more than, I think it's like more than 1,500 women now that are part, Black women that are part of this community in the Netherlands. It's not even just Amsterdam. It's it's the whole country has tapped into it. And it's just a wonderful, like supportive network of Black women who I just love. I just love Black women generally. And seeing black women thriving in the Netherlands has, has been really like fulfilling and it's good soul food for me. So I do feel a sense of longing for, for that community because that was like, that was great. That was a great part of being there. The other thing is that I like about the Netherlands is that it's just a very free, especially compared to the United States, free lifestyle where people leave you alone and you can just do your own thing. And there's not so much judgment. They have this mentality where like you do you, and and I'll do me. Like they even have a idea like they leave their windows wide open, which I think is crazy. But this like it's this idea like we we're free to be we're free to be who we are, without judgment. And I dig that. I I like that laid back lifestyle that is pretty much encouraged there. The, the racism is real, though, and with, like, I was explaining this Zwarte Piet tradition, that is getting better over the years, very gradually, with lots of ongoing activism from Black folks, so that's always going to be a reality. I think you're going to face racism everywhere, but I did not. It, it did not go unnoticed for me in the Netherlands, so it wasn't all cake and ice cream, <laughs> but overall, I felt like, yeah, this is a nice lifestyle to live in, in, in the Netherlands. I, I was riding my bike. I In The Hague, I lived 10 minutes from the beach and uh, 10 minutes in the other direction to the center of the city. I smoke. I could just like go to the corner store and get some weed to smoke weed whenever I want. It was just like the best, the best lifestyle. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't tell you enough. I really enjoyed that type of life. So
1: Dana now lives in Bristol in the United Kingdom. And I asked her, how did she end up in the UK? Why did she decide to leave
0: the Netherlands? And this is what she said. So my move from the Netherlands was somewhat accidental because I wasn't initially planning to leave, but I was in The Hague and yeah, I was working on my business and hustle, hustle. It was not easy. It wasn't like the money was coming so easily. So I was also freelancing and like life was a bit, day-to-day, trying to make things work. But then in that time, my mother got sick in Chicago. Her husband had already died, and she was alone in Chicago dealing with a cancer diagnosis. And my sister is on the East Coast. She's got three kids, very busy. Here I am living my best life, at least trying to in the Netherlands. But I was the right one to pick up and make sure my mom was okay. So I put my stuff into storage and went to Chicago for I don't even know how long. It's kind of kind of a blur, but it was at least 6 months, maybe maybe longer. And I was going back and forth a little bit because I was still doing my work there in the Netherlands. So I was still traveling between Chicago and the Netherlands quite a bit, but I was mainly in Chicago and my brain was just like Focused on my mom. And so my life abroad ended up taking a back seat for quite some time. And just my life in general it was just like back seat. So I didn't know what was going to happen next. My stuff was in storage. I did think that I was going to go back to the Netherlands, though, at some point. But it just so happens that I reconnected with an old friend from Ghana, actually. Who I started dating. I don't know. I don't even know how it happened. But like I was I think it was just like this transition that I was in in my life, like everything was a bit up in the air. And as I was going between the Netherlands and Chicago. I started t- like having these layovers in London, and this man was in the UK. So we started seeing each other, and then I started visiting intentionally to the UK just to see him, and that ended up completely changing my trajectory. I thought, okay, am I going to go back to the Netherlands to be alone, or should I make a bold move and move to be with this man and start a relationship in the UK where I previously had absolutely no interest in living. I have no interest in living. I can't stress it enough. I never once thought about living in the UK until I was in this relationship. So I thought, okay, I could do, I could do anything for love, a little like, you know, starry eyes. And we chose Bristol together. He wasn't living in Bristol. He never lived in Bristol. And I, I had never even heard of Bristol, to be honest. So we visited Bristol during one of my visits here to the country. And I really liked Bristol. Bristol had the most similar vibration to Amsterdam. It's got some water. People are laid back. They're politically active. There's a lot of graffiti. It's kind of like gritty. It's very vegetarian friendly. I'm a vegetarian. So I was like, okay, I could dig that. So I was like feeling it out. I think I could do this. So I did it. I decided to hire movers as crazy as it sounds to pack up my storage unit from the Netherlands and trucked my stuff over here to the UK to move to Bristol which was like almost as crazy as every other move that I had made relatively sight unseen. Yeah. And I, and I made that move. The, the sad thing is almost immediately I found out that dude had been cheating on me and living a whole double life behind my back that I was not previously aware of until like, I'm not even exaggerating, the day my moving truck arrived is when I found out like my whole world imploded. So I was basically in Bristol alone with no one. Like I didn't know, I don't know anyone here. I don't. I had no reason to be here other than this asshole. So I had a choice. I'm either going to go back to the Netherlands like a punk. I felt it sounds silly, but like I felt like I would be going backwards because I've made this big move over here. I could go back to Chicago like you just go back to the United States in defeat where I had no interest in living back in the US or I can make it work here. And that's what I've decided to do. I've, I've committed to it. I'm not committed beyond what I normally, you know, I stay in places for five years, whatever, however long it takes to find my next path. But yeah, I, I've i decided to get get my visa stuff figured out. I'm still in that process. Because obviously when I was originally moving, my plan was to uh, use my relationship, if not find a job, but use my relationship as a basis to get my uh, residency here because we were going to get married. But yeah, so I've had to rework all of the plans and I'm using my business as the basis to get my residency and and make a life for myself here. So definitely not the plan, definitely not what I would have, the path that I would have created for myself if I was going to leave the Netherlands, I would have done so much more gracefully if I could have prepared myself but here I am, I've landed somewhere new. And yeah, you make it work if you have to make it work. I asked Dana how she has been able to build community in Bristol. I am the same The same way I've approached it in the Netherlands. I approach it here. I look for Black women because I love Black women. And I was lucky during the like first few months here, I signed up for this was also on meetup. This is just coincidentally, but it was a, a black women's group. Actually, to be honest with you, I don't remember the name of the group, but it was a group that was advertising a weekend long workshop or seminar that was focused on black women and technology. And I signed up for it thinking, okay, well, Ancestors Unknown uses some technology and it's black women and it's a weekend. And I don't know anyone so I may as well just go for it, right? So I applied for this this seminar, this opportunity and thankfully they let me in. And I think it was about 15 women that were in the group and it was just like it was like a homecoming meeting these brilliant black women who are progressive, mainly they were working in technology, but everybody was doing unique interesting inspiring work like from artists to writers and yeah people building robots it was just like incredible work that is being done on all levels by black women in Bristol so I was inspired by that that was like I said it was so early on when I you know was still trying to figure out whether or not I wanted to stay what like what was my purpose here and that kind of gave me more courage, like thinking like these are women who are doing their thing. Many of them are living outside of the box. They're they're not living typical, ordinary lives. This in the same way that I am not either. So maybe I can, maybe I can thrive here. Maybe I can find my community here. And so that has been encouraging to know that I do have that community here. I've stayed in touch with with several of those women, and it's been very uplifting to have those friendships. And then since I've been here during the last few months, I've been like taking lockdown very seriously. So I'm not socializing or hanging out with anybody, but I've been very observant and feeling super validated about being here, seeing the political activism that's taking place in Bristol. It's made it's made worldwide news when they took down the statue of Edward Colston. And toppled that statue, threw that into the river, and I screamed. I was like, this is where I'm trying to be. You know, like, these are my people (laughs) throwing throwing the statue of a colonizer into the river. This is where I need to be. So that was when I really felt like, okay, I chose the right city. If I had to be in the UK, I chose the right city to be in because Black folks here are not to be messed with. And there's like so much work happening on the ground and I've been able to tap into that with Ancestors Unknown as well. So black women, activism, and also just like smart progressive work being done in terms of education, decolonizing the curriculum, decolonizing museums. Yeah, great work being done. And I'm, I'm participating in it. I'm lucky to be pulled into a lot of these projects and vibrating with these brilliant Black folks on the ground here. So yeah, very grateful for it.
1: I asked Dana to tell me about Ancestors Unknown and why she created it and what
0: it's all about. So when I was doing my studies, I knew that I wanted to start my own organization, right? And with this research, I was coming to a very clear understanding that this is a greater need far beyond the United States, but worldwide, especially throughout the African diaspora, for people to have access to their family histories. And when we have these histories of colonialism, enslavement, migrations, some of them forced migrations, we are disconnected. And this is a form of oppression when we are forced to be disconnected from our heritage and our identities, and people are denying us access to family history knowledge to maintain this sense of disempowerment, right? This became very clear to me as I was doing my studies and also doing my own family history research. As part of the, the final stage of my studies, I went to Suriname to finish up my research And because I thought it really makes more sense if I'm going to understand people's trajectories to understand their family heritage. And most of my respondents came from Suriname. I should go to Suriname and tap into the archives there and see what the local community says about their family history versus what folks say in the Netherlands. So in Suriname, I was doing this research and I ended up starting a pilot project for Ancestors Unknown before it was really Ancestors Unknown. And I ended up staying in Suriname for about a year, so I was really living there, piloting this project where I was introducing young people, mainly teenagers, early 20s, to family history research and the archives, taking them into the archives, teaching them how to find their ancestors, and at the same time, providing lectures. I, I, was, I was facilitating lectures and workshops with local professors and educators to come in and talk to the students about Suriname's black history. Because the thing is in Suriname, as in many other former colonized countries, they're learning the colonizer's history. They're learning Dutch history. They're probably learning a little bit of American history. And they're learning so little about their own histories. So what I was doing with this pilot is teaching them about their local history, their black history, their African history, and also their family histories. And with that pilot project that like had no clear name, I realized that this is something that could actually work as an organization. If I could just develop a curriculum and make it something that is sustainable. And so what I ended up doing, I, developed a curriculum in partnership with a friend of mine who is an educator. She helped me develop the history curriculum. So we call that the untold history curriculum. And that is combined with the family history research curriculum or the genealogy research curriculum. And so students have this opportunity to have these two types of lessons combined So that they can understand who their ancestors are, learn about their ancestors, and at the same time, see their ancestors in the context of these untold histories. Where were my ancestors during these rebellions or these these liberation movements that were taking place? What were my ancestors doing during that time? And can I name those ancestors? Can I find them in the archives? I want our students, the Ancestors Unknown students, to feel empowered by that narrative, the the broader narrative, to understand their place in history, but also to have that sense of agency where they can do the research, they can do the work to discover their ancestors and learn about their identities, learn about their history without being... Subjected to this oppressive sense of a colonial education, this education that I'm told I'm supposed to learn about other people, and I have to just sit down and accept it. No, we have agency. We can take some charge over our histories and and start rewriting our own personal narratives. So yeah, that's what Ancestors Unknown is doing with that pilot in Suriname. That was great, but we ended up really. Uh, latching on in the U.S. The first school partnership that I had was in Charleston. And so the curriculum was actually easier to write from a U.S. perspective because I know more about U.S. history. My friend who wrote the curriculum, Ducharme Archer, she knew more about U.S. history. So like that's where we really started. And since then, though, I've taken it back to the Netherlands where I returned after I lived in Suriname for a year. I returned to the Netherlands to live in The Hague for a few more years. So I brought Ancestors Unknown with me there and created Ancestors Unknown Nederland. And so the curriculum was translated into Dutch, and we're serving schools there as well. And and it's not just translated into Dutch, also the historical context is translated into a, a Dutch relevant context, right? So Now we're not just talking about Black American history, or we also talk about indigenous histories and Latina, Latinx histories. But in the Netherlands, we have to talk about Indonesian history because they colonized Indonesia as well. We're also talking about their work in the global south with colonization and things like that. But we're not talking about it from the perspective of the Dutch colonizers. We're talking about it from the perspective of the former colonized, right? The, the people who experienced colonialism and who survived it. And we're putting them in the spotlight. So it is important as we bring Ancestors Unknown to different countries and different audiences to change the, the, the focus of the historical topics. We have to definitely make it fit the local audience. I'm now in the UK And I'm working on bringing Ancestors Unknown here. And as part of that, I'm working on writing the UK-specific curriculum so that the content here is relevant to British audiences and young people of color here will be able to tap into the family history research as well as the untold histories that relate to their ancestors that come from mainly former british colonies i see ancestors as a worldwide organization i think that wherever there are black and brown people who have suffered oppression and marginalization there is a space and a need for ancestors unknown to be in classrooms and as well as just in communities in general teaching people about family history research and celebrating their histories and so I want to spread ancestors unknown in that way and increase my credibility and uh, my ability to trot around the gro- globe and have give lectures and workshops and share <laughs> share my truth with people as much as possible because I think that yeah the message should be international and the same way I've lived my life traveling and seeing different parts of the world I want ancestors unknown to, to reach as many parts if not far more parts of the world.
1: I asked Dana, what has been her experience as a black American woman, traveler, an expat or immigrant?
0: It's mixed, I I definitely walk through the world as an American and I hate that because I'm so anti-American, I like even the, the title expat, I'm like, I was never a patriot, I'm such a brat, but I was never a patriot, like how could I be an expatriate? But I mean, that's just being petty, but just the idea that I have this American identity that I can't escape. But I do, and and I'm very fully aware of it. I I know that I have a ton of passport privilege, at least before Corona locked everything down, but the U.S. passport, the U- American accent, and also my complexion. I'm a light-skinned black woman, so I have these three levels of privilege that I cannot deny, right? So that's, these are things that make certain aspects of being a black person in any part of the world easier. American lighter complexion and speaking English with an American accent, all of that's privilege. So I carry that and I own it, but I also try to be clear when I'm in any place, and i've I've said this like as I was in the Netherlands and I'm, I'm relatively new here still, and in Suriname, I tried to tap into the local community and have people have people understand that I'm not coming in with privilege to to teach anything or to deliver anything. I am merely learning from people and observing and trying to absorb their greatness, right. So, I don't want anybody to ever perceive me as another form of a colonizer or some kind of American imperialist by no means. But sometimes people do make that assumption like, oh, you're an American, so you probably like this or you probably do that. Like, no, I don't. I don't do that. I'm, I'm more down with a local black community than hanging out with white Americans. It's not I'm not interested in that. So yeah, so that that's part of it. I always have to navigate carefully to have people understand that what I walk in with is not necessarily all that I am about, if that makes sense. And, but then there's other things like that have come up, like in Suriname, I would say mainly in Suriname, a little bit in Ghana and not so much anywhere else though. But I had the question almost Every day, Christine, I started journaling about it because it was so annoying that almost every day people were asking me, which one of your parents is white or who in your family is white? And I never had to deal with that before. Like in, in Ghana, there wasn't like an assumption like, oh, well, your your color is light. And that was that would piss me off. And people would say, like, I like your color. I hate that. But I like it. Just But it was always a clear clear understanding that I'm black, like you're black. So I never had to like justify my blackness. But for some reason in Suriname, there was this assumption that because of my complexion, I must have a white parent, not not even just a white person somewhere in my family tree. People were like, which one of your parents is white? And I would say, no, I'm black. No, and then it would be like a argument. No, no, like for real, like who's white though in your family? who's white. No one, all of my, I'm, I'm a family historians. So I can prove to you. I can show you my family tree. All of my great grandparents, all of them are black. And the only explanation for my complexion is slavery. You know, like there, there's no glory. There's no, there's nothing for you to admire about this. It's a sad story that you should read into my light complexion. And it's not something that I am going to brag about. And it, it but it was always presented. And this is where the frustration is, because I'm happy to have the conversation about the history, and to exp- and, and to clear up um, misunderstandings about slavery and and the longstanding implications of these violations of our of our history. But that's not what they were doing. Folks were saying it as a compliment. That oh. It's a good thing that one like somebody in your blood is white. It's a good thing that you don't look like a dark-skinned black woman. And I just take so much rage from that. Like that just makes me it makes me feel hurt for all of us that we that we have this mentality, but also just the the dismissiveness of what my experience has been in the United States and what the experience has been of my ancestors for what they have gone through for now you to diminish that to be a compliment because i have white blood in me and when these were actually rapists and and slave owners no so anyway that's that's a conversation that i have had to have that makes me sit in a lot of discomfort like I, I hate those conversations and I used to it started to become a fight and, I, and it was one of my reasons for not ever feeling like settled in Suriname because it came up so much there was so much to love about Suriname but the the question of race and identity and the confusion about it came up so much I was like I I don't think I can do this too much and it was also, I was observing, I mean, this is something that I observe in, in many places, but it was already like levels of street harassment were pretty great in Suriname, like pretty significant street harassment. But I would observe the difference between how I was being harassed, not that it's a compliment, it was very annoying, and then how dark-skinned Black women were not being harassed. So I would get i get pissed i still get pissed off by that like these beautiful black women walking around here and here i am sweating like an asshole <laughs> you know, like i don't i i there is nothing good about what i have going on right now and here you are complimenting my my light complexion and the the violent history that has created who i am so it just felt like having to contend with that far more than i then i enjoyed. I dislike going to the United States so much. But the one thing that I enjoy about going back, I I never say home because home would technically be Philadelphia, but I never go back to Philadelphia. But the one thing that I enjoy about going back to the United States is this solidarity of blackness and this understanding that we're all black. I don't have to explain my blackness. I don't have to justify why I look the way I look. You can be a light-skinned black person and you still share equal black identity without explanation. We all understand we have this shared ridiculous history in this country and I don't have to like bring out my textbooks to to justify why I look the way I look or why I talk the way I talk. So yeah, that that Black American identity that that we share, that solidarity, I definitely appreciate it. And when I hear folks who have my accent and who are listening to the same music that I enjoy, there's certain things that feel like home that make the United States feel like home around black people that I don't get necessarily outside the country, and like fights that I don't have to have in 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 the United States that I have to have outside the country.
1: I asked Dana to describe to me her definition of wellness and how had living abroad influenced that definition and practice of wellness for her?
0: Well, for me, like for my mental health, being out of the United States is first and foremost my strategy. Because like every time I re-enter the U.S., I feel heavy, I feel this sense of weight and a lack of joy. I I can't even describe it. I always love visiting my family, but I just can never wait to leave the country. I don't feel healthy (laughs) there. And when I'm abroad, even if I'm going through struggles, I have financial struggles or relationship struggles, I do feel like I am putting my mental health first by being out of the country and, or being out of my home country and taking control of my situation, right? That being said, though, it's still not easy. It's, it's been a journey for me to find peace of mind and find every, like the right way for me to really experience happiness and wellness on the next level beyond just like the basics of let me not die in the United States. So in Amsterdam is where, no, actually in the Hague, is where I really started to explore alternative means of pursuing my wellness or pursuing mental health. Since my early 20s, I've dealt with depression and anxiety. And for like during that stage, when I was still in the US, I was taking medication, and I tried to deal with it that way. But, yeah, just being outside of the country helped me on on that level, like, to just not be medicating. But I was looking for alternative means beyond therapy. Like, how else can I start to address my mental health and make sure I'm taking care of myself? And I ended up experimenting with magic mushrooms. And I – because you can grow them legally in the Netherlands – and that was a whole nother reason why I was like, this is my kind of place where there are these alternative medicines and they're not considered class A drugs or whatever. So I started growing mushrooms and micro dosing with them. And that ended up being an incredible journey toward healing for me. And I started feeling a sense of possibility that I didn't have before, yeah, so it's, it sounds a little bit kooky, but mushrooms have re- a, a really powerful medicinal benefit where they open your mind up and they help your brain, especially when you deal with depression, when you're, the, your circuits are kind of wired in one toxic direction and the mushrooms redirect your synapses, like the way your brain works into like a much more open way of thinking and it basically creates more pathways beyond life sucks and life's miserable, right? Like that, that that your depressed mind wants you to think through and you see the world so much brighter and yeah, like I said, possibilities will open up for you with this new way of thinking and it's not about getting high so or tripping. Like you can do a full trip on mushrooms and I certainly encourage that. I think that's a great experience as well. But micro dosing was really a, just like a, a matter of taking medicine. Like you don't get high, you don't trip, you just feel lighter and better, more productive, more functional. And that was a game changer for me. So I started doing that. I did that for a couple of years. And the only reason why I'm not still growing mushrooms is because it's not legal here in the UK and I haven't figured out how to function within this conservative society <laughs> but but mushrooms have been huge for me I've seen a therapist here in the UK and I have always explored you know other means of how to get support for my mental health just to stay sane with all of these changes that we're going through and the, the the state of the world it is it's even heavier than it would be on a normal day for a black woman in in this world so I've I'm constantly exploring, like, how can we, how can we stay healthy? How can we keep breathing, you know, without uh, overwhelming myself? So, yeah, I've, I've, I'm experimenting with different processes now that I can't benefit from the mushrooms. I asked
1: Dana if she had any advice for all of you listening who are wanting to move abroad, live abroad or maybe you move to a different country while you're abroad
0: well first I would say trust your gut that there if that you have a feeling that you want to live abroad and that that is where you will be happiest or happier do it because there there will always be a naysayer or a challenge that stands in your way for me I've come across many hurdles and barriers and things, obstacles that made me think maybe I'm not doing the right thing. But when you come across those barriers or naysayers, don't listen, like trust your gut and know what you really need for yourself and for your own joy, because you're at the end of the day, you're the ultimate decider for your fate. Don't let anybody else decide that for you. And Yeah, I think thinking creatively about for problem solving purposes and to find the different routes into the countries where you want to live, making uh, the right connections, like there are certain ways that you can do these moves that aren't necessarily on a website. You know what I mean? Like you can't necessarily Google how to move to... Nigeria and and find, you know, like, an out-of-the-box solution. Sometimes you have to think creatively and know what's best for you individually to find your right way in. Yeah, and for me, part of it has also been, re- like, holding myself accountable, like, setting a goal for myself and sticking with it. When I first started, I was using my blog to hold myself accountable. I use my daily journal to like see am I working toward my goal and sometimes I'll see that I'm a little bit off the path. And then when I do observe that I'm getting off the path, then find your way back. What is the actual purpose of why you're here or like what your mission is in life and also in the country that you're in. Like what's your mission? And make sure you're staying on that path. Like when I got into that bad relationship, I got off the path. Like I was distracted and and then really took time away from me, from what I was supposed to be achieving here in Bristol or in any other part of the world. And hell if I'm going to let a man take me off course like that again. So I just have to hold myself accountable for every action I'm taking and making sure that it is deliberate and working toward this purpose that I have. I have a motivation, I have a picture of one of my ancestors, who's my great great grandfather, and he escaped from slavery and fought in the civil war and did all of these dope, taught himself how to read, started schools and became a state senator, he's like this dope hero of mine. And I have his picture up. He looks at me sometimes like, girl, what you doing? But I look at him and I look at all of my ancestors and I think of them as saying like, they're the ones who got me to where I am today. And I don't want to disappoint them. Like, I, I do everything that I do to live up to their expectations and to make them proud and to be the best future ancestor <laughs> that I can be. Because someday somebody will look at my picture and I want them to live up to my expectations as well. So I'm doing it for the ancestors and, and that's what I live by. Thank you
1: so much, Dana. You are just an incredible guest and I appreciate your insights and your transparency. So great. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, you can connect with
0: Dana via social media. There are several places. So my business website, Ancestors Unknown, is ancestors-unknown.org. So ancestors-unknown.org. But I'm also on all the socials. So Instagram is Ancestors Unknown, Twitter, Facebook, um, and LinkedIn. So... Any and all of those places, I encourage people to connect with me because I'm also happy to have conversations offline as well.
1: Thank you again, Dana. And thank you all for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Dana, read her bio, see some pictures, you can check it out on the episode show notes page, which is on the website. Yes, you can go to www.flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes, slash Dana. You can find it all there. If you did enjoy this episode and if you love this podcast, I highly suggest you support this here Black Woman Podcast. Yes, I do. You can do so by becoming a Patreon supporter at www.patreon.com slash FlourishForeign. You can cash out the podcast at dollar sign flourish foreign. You, You can purchase production equipment for this podcast. Yes, you can at the Amazon wish list which you can find on the website www.flourishintheforeign.com/support. Be sure to be following the podcast across all social media channels at flourishforeign Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Check out the YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is poppin' You can check it out for some really great interviews, so do so. But also, be sure that you are giving a five-star rating and leaving a review of this here podcast. And that you're sharing this podcast with your friends, with your family, with your favorite blog, your favorite magazine, with Oprah. If y'all know Oprah, you can go ahead and send that to her too. Yeah, I'm not going to stop you. All right, so support this here Black Woman podcast. Big thanks, as always, to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music for this podcast. If you need music for your new creative endeavor, I highly suggest you hitting up Zachary. He's great. All his information is in the show notes of this episode. All right, that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast. And thank you so much for believing in the voices and stories of black women. Thank you so much for believing in centering black women and creating this space for us and by us. I appreciate you. You all take care of yourselves. And y'all know what it is. It's not about getting abroad. It's not about being abroad. about thriving abroad so go abroad and cultivate a life well lived see you next time bye (music) on the next episode of flourish in the foreign
0: and so being in europe i mean not even just in europe i think this is the experience once you leave the u.s but especially in europe in africa most of the countries in africa even south america central america but once you leave America, people are like, oh, wow, you're a beautiful woman. You know, you're smart. You have a beautiful smile. You have a body that I'm attracted to. And you're a woman. <laughs> you're like this three-dimensional woman that I want to spend more time with. I want to take you on a date. I want to know you. I'll, I enjoy your, com- you know, your company. And it's, you just seen. And there's that no other way to say it. You are
1: absolutely seen.